Hello, it's good to be able to welcome you to another podcast. Great to have your company and the company of my guests today. This is Rethinking Aloud, podcasting and encouraging conversation in the Diocese of Leicester. And today we're thinking about growing, growing churches. And I'm joined by three people who all know something about the topic we're discussing, but all minister in very different contexts. Uh, Alison Booker, vicar of a team of rural villages, some of them very small, but who's seen some exciting growth in some of her worshipping communities. Uh, They've been doing some innovative stuff with worship clubs in village schools and youth buses and things. Uh, She's also area dean of Launch Deanery, a whole bunch of rural parishes in the East Leicester countryside. Joined also by John McGinley, uh, for about 10 years, maybe a bit longer, vicar of Holy Trinity Church in Leicester's city centre, a very large congregation, lots of younger worshippers, and one of our diocesan resourcing churches. Uh, John's still on the staff team at Holy Trinity, but now spends much of his time working nationally with New Wine and the Archbishop's College of Evangelists and helps facilitate the communities of practice of our six resourcing churches in the diocese. And as Monty Python might have said, now for something completely different. Um, David Hitchcock, licensed pioneer minister in the diocese, who runs a heavy metal and prog rock express fresh expression of church. Uh, it's called Jacob's Ladder. It meets in a working men's club and which was started from scratch just a few years back. Great lineup. So let's talk growing churches. Uh, and it strikes me that sometimes we're a bit embarrassed to talk about growth in the Church of England. But why do you think that might be? I think, John, it's probably, at least in part, that it feels a little bit like showing off, uh, like the worst kind of childish, biggest is best. Um, But mostly, I think it's because we've got quite a narrow idea of what growth means. Right. That's interesting. And that's really good. I think we might hold that thought and come back to that later on. But uh, yeah, and I think there's certainly something about not wanting to look like we're bragging, um, which which is in there. Um, John, anything to add to that? Yeah, I, I, I felt similarly that it's something about um, the not wanting to uh, big ourselves up, but also not wanting to put pressure on people as well. I think that um, that we're in a time which it's, it's challenging for the church where there isn't um, easy growth. It's not an easy thing to do. And so we're, we're naturally, I think, particularly within the Church of England, pastoral caring, and we're not wanting to um, overly pressurise people. And so as soon as we start to talk about growth, it can feel like a burden and a pressure, even though I really believe that Jesus wants every church to grow in terms of what he taught. But but we don't almost know how to do that in a way that we feel that we're confident we'll get it right. And so I think we step back from it. And that's interesting. So you said there, um, sort of sparking off a bit of a chain of thought, but uh, we often have a very localised view of church, um, don't we? And I, I wonder if that perhaps affects how we view church and what our expectations are, because around the world, uh, the church continues to grow. Uh, and something that John said there, I just wonder, should we view church growth as normative and decline as the exception? Uh, you know, Jesus said, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, if you've been following uh, the Matthew readings in the Anglican lectionary recently, all those kingdom of God parables are all about growth. Um, actually, should growth be the norm? And are we just because we see things through very localised or very Western European eyes, are we missing what what it's supposed to look like? John, I think that's exactly it. I mean, I have to say, if if Jesus says, I will build my church, that's good enough for me. And, and I think that's the truth that, that we hang on to. I think that very often the principles of kingdom life are contrary to the way that the world views things. And, and I sometimes get a bit concerned that we evaluate growth on worldly terms, not kingdom terms. I know when we started the ladder, we started with nobody. And, and there was one magical evening. So the uh, team tell me that we had 75 people in the building and it was great excitement uh for such a little village to have so many metalheads turn up to to meet with jesus you know what there were people in there that had no idea why they were there some uh, one guy had turned up thinking it was an open audition night for blues harmonica players no idea why 
there were six people at the back of the room genuinely having a committee meeting for the darts club because they come to the wrong room, but the bar was open, so they assumed it was okay. Attendance, to me, has nothing to do with the church. Uh, I, I always say, I, I've taken my wife and my daughter to see, take that in front of 40-odd thousand people. I am not a fan of take that. I imagine <laughs> I ever will be. I certainly won't own an album. But I was on the head count. Do you, do you know what I mean? Uh and I think we look for church growth, really, in where there is fruit of the spirit uh, in individuals and, and, and as a collective, really. And so I'm a bit suspicious about considering church growth as the number of people that have been through the door and, and popped a pound on the plate or whatever. I I think growth is all about how people are growing as disciples. And you cannot stop the business of Jesus doing that. I, I just, you know, making me think as I'm listening to David, uh, that thing about localised as well. I'm just aware of, you know, other places in the world where, you know, the church is real persecution. So in terms of numbers, you know, some of those persecuted places, we hear stories of kind of growing numbers. But in lots of places, realistically, you know, there are tiny numbers of Christians meeting together, um, but their growth of depth of faith and, and trust in God um, is enormous because of the situation in which their faith is lived. So, so, so we, that, that's useful. So, I guess we've kind of flagged up the fact there that although we may often be talking about numbers um, in terms of growth in the number of people attending our churches or groups or fresh expressions, um, growing numbers of people coming to Christ and becoming disciples, um, but we need to have a, a bigger picture of what growth is is there a danger then though sometimes that that correct theological larger picture and definition of growth can if we're not careful tip over into becoming an excuse i don't know if um if anyone's got any thoughts on that i'm not convinced that it's a that the excuse back to what john was saying at the beginning that that kind of um actually are careful and they're not wanting to put pressure on people, but also I think um, about where our focus is, you know, and certainly for me and, and lots of my work is with, is with much smaller numbers of Christians, you know, the communities are, are small anyway um, and the, the Christian community is small, um, but actually there is something really important about that bigger understanding. Um, so it kind of, for me, it, it kind of goes back to family and yeah, I'm the mum of three children um, and I want them to grow, but not I don't just want them to be tall um, or have <laughs> lots of children. I want them to be mature in faith and um, service and love and understanding and, you know, all those things. It would be odd just to kind of go, well, I've got lots of children, but I don't really mind how they are. Um, <laughs> Just to pick up on that one, I think Alison, if if you lost any of your children, you'd you'd be pretty upset though, exactly. and so and so I think I think this is the tension, which is that um, that we count people because they really matter to God, yeah. and they they're just so precious to Him, and so I think we have to make sure that we don't get into into the idea that we shouldn't count people. But I really liked what David said. It's about what we're counting. And and it's and I think it brings the two together when we're saying we're wanting to see people grow as disciples of Jesus Christ into the fullness of that. But, you know, the Bible is full of counting. You know, we've got a book of numbers and we've got uh, the picture of Jesus counting as a, as a shepherd, the, the number of sheep and not being satisfied with 99 because the one that was lost mattered to him. And so. I think in in our in our reality of the decline of the church, the challenge of the numbers of the church, we shouldn't beat ourselves up about the size and the numbers we have now. But I do think that we should be counting so that we know that we're seeking to grow and we're not and we're seeking to not lose people. And if either of those things are shown in the numbers we count, that we're we're losing people, particularly younger demographics, then we should care about that because God cares about that. Bringing together what all three of you are saying there, um, the kind of the what question, right? you know, what we count is less important than why. And we count people because people count. 
I mean, I've noticed, I've noticed during lockdown. I mean, we've spent a lot of our Jacob's Ladder time online during lockdown, and I must see maybe three or four postings every day that keep telling me that uh, small, real churches are preferable to large, superficial. And I get that because that's it's comfortable with me. But picking up on what John's just said, it also feels a little bit defeatist because why are we so gladly declaring small churches are cool? Because big churches can be cool as well, you know. I, I think my I remember when I first became a Christian, I was part of a church that there must have been sort of 80-odd people in there, very committed evangelical Christians. Uh, and then as we grew close to, I think it was a summer mission, suddenly in the village hall where we met, the number 100 had been printed out on A4 sheets of paper all around the room. And the focus became, through this mission, let's turn the fellowship into 100 people. The fellowship had collapsed and died within six months of that because our whole focus changed to the number 100 not the people that made the 100, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's probably had a, a, a big impact on me personally because it's not that I'm scared of 100, but I am scared of making the number more important than the person, which is so easy to do. But I get the tension, John, because you're right, those small church messages make me feel a little bit uncomfortable. So changing the tack a little bit, you guys have all seen growth. Um, in very different contexts, you know, big church, small church, urban, suburban, rural, bunch of hairy rockers in a working men's club. You know, a lot of variety, a lot of diversity there. But do you discern any common characteristics of growing churches? So I think for me, the, the, the common characteristics of growing churches are that they are alive in God, that there is a life of God about them. Uh, and I really, I always answer this question in this way because I think that the form of that life can take so many different ways. You know, I really want to hear more about David's um, Jacob's Ladder Church. I'm so excited about that. It's the first time I've heard about it. But, but you know, that that's a form of church that's so different than, say, for instance, um, a really um, traditional evangelical church or an Anglo-Catholic Eucharist. Uh, and yet, if each of those has the life of the Spirit in it, where people connect with God and where they sense him begin to um, draw them on in relationship with, with him, then I think that's what causes churches to grow. And we have to get the stuff around that right. That really matters, the form and the connecting points with people. But if you do all the form and there's no life of God in it, then and I really don't see any growth. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. For me, it's about that authentic relationship with God. Unquestionably, I mean, I think our watchword is love, and it, it is, it, it, and, it, and it's, it's sharing God's loving context with, with where we're at. But the fact of the matter is, without God's love and God's life being present, it ain't no church. And, yeah. and with it, that makes it. I mean, Jacob's ladders change quite dramatically in terms of the people that attend because of people's love and community with one another, not because of the music that they're playing albeit then that's important. I tell you, I'm quite pleasing really. We were looking for common characteristics and there was a real commonality in, in where you were, all three of you were coming from in your answers. There was a word that you dropped in there, David, um, which, is, which is interesting to me. Um, I'm just wondering, is it as important or almost as important for a church that wishes to grow um, that it understands its context as much as it understands the gospel? So, David, you go first on that because I okay. think you introduced well, that. So, so, when we set Jacob's Ladder up initially, we, we were just trying to form a bit of a vision and, and, and look at who we were trying to attract and so forth. The common thing that came out of the team was a piece of scripture that's become our watchword. Okay, So, we kind of, everything that we do, or at least we, we try to do, we try to live by John thirteen thirty five, which is the one where it says, this is how everyone will recognize that you're my disciples when they see the love you have for each other. So rightly or wrongly, we put at the, the forefront of everything that we try and do, 
our love for one another. And and when I became the pioneer, the, the diocese put a little network of people to look after me and, and Stephen March was my kind of mentor. And his his advice to me consistently was the most important people in your church are your team, not selfishly, but if the team are looking after one another and loving one another, everyone else will be attracted to that. And in fact, so our, our love and commitment to one another has been more important than choosing whether we play Motorhead tonight or, or whether we play Yes and Genesis, you know. They are important and people appreciate those and everything that we do context-wise relates to the sort of theme of, of music and the prog and the metal. But it is very secondary to our, our love for one another and are trying to live out the gospel rather than preach the gospel, if that makes sense. I don't know if that helps or confuses, but our priority is John 13, 35. So I, I, again, really agree with that. But I think that what um, what you are doing, David, is you're in your loving one another. You're, you're doing your loving one another is creating a context for people who you want to come to know Jesus and be able to worship him in a way that feels authentic and so out of your love you're creating a community that that fits that context and and so I think that that's what love looks like I think love changes to uh, to accommodate and to include and to to reach out to people and if we're doing that then I think that we really will seek to understand we'll seek to listen first we'll seek to to love people um in the way that it feels like they're loving when you love somebody the issue isn't whether or not i feel i'm loving them it's whether they feel loved and and quite often um when people look at the church they don't they don't feel loved by the church because it doesn't look like them and it doesn't look like a place they'd want to be and so for me the gospel has to look like good news to the people we're seeking to reach as well as include the right content uh, and so that means we have to incarnate it we have to uh, to love the people enough to be willing to shape a community to 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 make sure it fits with the context and includes the people in that context and that's an act of love john that's brilliant i wish i'd thought of it <laughs> <laughs> and you're absolutely right I, but I think what's happened with us, and, and, and I can see in other places that have grown, is it, it's grown naturally out of the gospel and, and the love, as you said. It's not an artificial, let's create something for this community yeah. and then throw Jesus in. It came from the other way around just because we like two things. We, we love Jesus and, and we really quite like heavy metal. And, you like, <laughs> and, and what you've just said is absolutely right. Thank you. Yeah, so I just think so. It's bringing together gospel and context. And I was thinking, Alison, you, your your sort of story. You, you've been a church army evangelist. You did a curacy in uh, sort of a, a kind of uh, an urban area. You're now in a very rural area. Well, what have you picked up from those different experiences about the importance of context? Yeah, I think for me, it picks up on uh, the word John used when he talked about incarnation. Um, so that, you know that word we we used to talk about Jesus who left the the glory of heaven and came and was born as a human being. Um, that for me is is that context thing that actually the the glory of God's love um, becoming one of us in our context so that we can understand God's love and <clears throat> form that relationship. Um, and that's been, you know, that's the story all the way through the Bible. So for me, understanding context is is really important um, because it is about understanding who different people are. There's there's rarely, in my experience, one context in any given place. There are usually multiple contexts. Um, but understanding who people are, how they tick, um, what what they connect with. Um, in a way that helps them to explore faith and relationship with God um, in a way that they can understand and connect. Um, and so I found myself, as you say, doing very different things and speaking in very different ways in different contexts, same um, glorious love of God, same relationship for me with God, um, 
but those conversations are different in different places because the context is different. So I'm going to take it on, uh, take it on now, and uh, uh, this next question, a two-parter. Um, firstly, perhaps some, some insight or tips or, or thoughts. What can we do to make our churches or our groups more welcoming? Uh, and I think that is an important thing to think about. But then secondly, does making what we already do more welcoming, um, does that go far enough? Uh, or does it implicitly rely far too much on a come-to-us model? When Jesus's great commission was for us to go, you know, is that we've made it shinier method, shutting the door after the horse has bolted in a post-Christendom paradigm. So kind of two questions there. How can we make um, stuff more welcoming? But secondly, does that even go far enough? I um, don't know who wants to kick off with that one. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll go on that. I think the two definitely go together because if if we do go and we do reach people, and I, I really hope that we do, um, then what we bring them into uh, really matters. And and at Holy Trinity, we we do, we run the Alpha course. We're running one online at the moment, and that's the natural, easy point for people who have no faith just to connect with faith. But after the Alpha course, which is the affirming of questions, affirming of their contribution, building community, having when we allowed to having food together, which they go, yeah, I love this. Then what we noticed is they come into a church and the church is a place where their voice isn't heard. One person speaks at them from the front where they don't build community. They're expected to sit in rows and listen. And and suddenly that we noticed they, they didn't have an easy into church. And so creating a place of welcome, and I think that's going to look very different in each place, and ensuring that people are are unable to build relationship and feel included and affirmed however they are when they start to come is really important and i'm i'm trying to stay clear of just of, the, of just the practicalities of that but it really is going to involve practicality so it you know one of the first things i did at holy trinity was i we, we served proper coffee you know because the coffee was terrible honestly it was just dreadful and they said you can't do it because we've got too many people but amazingly you can buy massive machines that would deliver really good quality coffee and you think well that's not very important but the world we live in people go to coffee shops now and then they come into the church and they go oh they obviously they, they don't care about the fact that I that, that, that I'm here because they're serving me rubbish coffee <laughs> so, and so that's a really silly example, but it, 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 it feeds into this sense of we have to understand how people are coming and what matters to them and what they feel when they come. And so we really have to pay attention to welcome. I don't think it's a silly example at all. I love Holy Trinity's coffee. <laughs> Thank but, you very but, much. But seriously, we, do, we found the same. That old alpha thing of the food being really important. Yeah, yeah. Every one of our meetings we provide food and we provide there you go nice yeah. decent food that the people there enjoy and it's those moments when we've got 20 minutes half an hour sitting nibbling chatting that we've seen people become part of us rather than sitting on the edges that's been our that's been our strongest welcome the food bit yeah. that's when the relationships genuinely seem to to we, we kind of time it nicely we think after we've posed a couple of challenging questions but in all honesty when you're wandering around it's most people just chit-chatting rather than picking up the topic and running yeah. with it but the food the coffee i think is really important in this day and age actually i'm with you i'm with you yeah alison you, have you got any thoughts on that kind of making church more welcoming thing before we go on to the second kind of the kicker the second part of the question yeah there's a couple of things really that the food thing uh, just to jump on the bandwagon so I, I agree with the other two food's massive um but in different ways. And we've often used uh, food actually in our sermons as ways of exploring um, the Bible together through food, because um, quite a lot of what we do is intergenerational, uh, which led to a very fascinating conversation that I overheard in school between two small children, um, who one of whom said, oh, we had a new person, a new vicar come to church who was doing the service. Second child. Did they bring cake? First child. <laughs> no. Second child, well, that's not very good then. Um, so I may have kind of made some kind of connection, but cake and faith may need a little bit of picking later. Um, but actually, for me, there's something about welcome that isn't just about 
um, an existing group um, making a space for somebody to come in and join what already is going on. But welcome for me is about um, holding the coming and going together. Um, and actually, true welcome for me means that both those who are already part of the community and those who are coming into the community, both are changed. That's what real welcome yeah. looks like for me, that people's voices are heard just as validly um, when they're new to somewhere as when they've been long established in a place um, and that any change to a group should um, should affect everybody. That's quite yeah. and I and I think I think that is the key to this, which is that in our existing church communities, we can become very, we can become quite rigid in uh, in the cultures in which we're all there because we like it and we like doing the things we do the way we do them. Yeah. And uh, and you know, it was William Temple who said that the uh, the church is the only organisation that exists for the people outside of it. And yet so often our church communities haven't formed like that. And I know at Holy Trinity, one of the issues for us was that we were we were serving um, uh, many homeless people. We were reaching out to them. But when they came into our community, they felt distinctly uncomfortable because of the majority culture. Mm. And so so we had to learn ways to actually allow our culture to to evolve and change so that they felt included and affirmed and that they weren't in any way feeling that they were weren't welcome and and that that took some thinking and we're talking a lot about racial issues and again even before all the recent things for us at holy trinity we've been talking about how do we welcome those voices and affirm people and 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 actually make sure they feel that they're a that they're welcome and included and there are people like them that are being affirmed and so that they they can feel part of this community and so it, it's much more than just the surface stuff it, it really is about the culture and things getting changed and and an existing group of people being willing to become flexible and changed by new people joining them so i really agree with with what alison's saying and it's interesting isn't it that um you know over the years the 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 sort of most popular metaphors for church tend to change. So you might go back to the 19th century and we were on with Christian soldiers and soldiers <laughs> and army metaphor. I would think the most commonly used kind of metaphor for church these days is, is family. You know, the, the phrase the church family is, is used almost ad nauseum. Uh, and if we think of our own experiences of families, you know, you have a, if a family has a new baby arrive, my gosh, it changes everything. Um, yeah. Yep. So coming on to the second part of the question. So we, we've we agreed that actually providing a welcome that ensures that people know that they really are welcomed is massively important. Um, but uh, particularly a few years ago, there was, there was a lot of emphasis and quite a lot of research done uh, on, you know, how to be a more welcoming church and, and stuff like that. Does that go far enough? Yeah, you know, if we're going to see vast numbers of people come to a relationship with Jesus and join us as the people of God, whatever that's going to look like, just making church shinier, is that going to be enough? Well, it definitely isn't because the 93% of people who uh, don't go to church in our in our country um, don't wake up on a Sunday morning thinking, shall I go to church? It's not even a question that will pass through most of their minds on that Sunday morning. So they won't come. And however shiny we are on a Sunday morning, uh, it, it won't look like that. So we we can in, improve that by the come to us. So I think invitation is, is great. That's that's what families do. That's what communities do. They say, we'd love you to be part of what we're doing. Would you come? So I, I think that really that really works. But the invitation works best when it comes with somebody who's in real relationship with somebody. Mm. And so that means we have to go and be with people. Uh, and so going and being with people and helping people to, to show that love that David was talking about and live out their faith with others. And then to say, would you like to be in part of this? And then if we've then got a welcoming culture, then that makes that those two come together. So we've got to equip people to go and to feel that they can live out their faith with, with people outside the church in a way that causes them to, to ask questions and to be open to being invited. I think, I think in my, my 
my previous role was, was a reader in, in, in our church, and I think I got on everybody's nerves so much, pointing to all the empty pews on a Sunday, knowing that 93% was outside. And, and we did keep polishing the thing, and it seemed to make no difference. And and Jacob's Ladder wasn't the only initiative it's got to be said, but we did go out. Now, I'm not quite sure what going out meant, because all we've really done is gone 150 metres down the road to the Working Men's Club. But it, it provided a different context and showed we were interested, I guess. That seems to have made made a difference. But I tell you what, as we've noticed during lockdown, Ladder misses congregating together we, we've we've found we've gone out but we've built a community that needs and wants to be together because that's how it functions yeah. Well. Um, yeah so i didn't see anything wrong with with our parish church it just wasn't satisfying 93 percent of the sunday morning wake-ups and and i guess ladders picked up you know 0.3 percent of the 93 percent for those that like metal uh, and, and and they will come but going out was important but so is building a good community that wants to congregate together and do, albeit in a different way, the, the, the recognised marks of church, I guess. I think we're realising, I think lockdown kind of shone a light in some ways um, on lots of things that were already in existence, but we've kind of seen them in a new way. And so certainly we've noticed um, our connection with um the school we do a lot of our worship is kind of connected between church and school um and uh, we've been trying to work out this last term um how we look at the kind of collective worship for school when we can't obviously have lots of visitors going in and out of the school building um but all of the year sixes were back in school for the whole term from when they were able to be um and uh, and others were connecting the other school years connecting from home but uh, finding a way of connecting our church congregation um, folk who obviously are, are a different generation to the children and those kind of things. So we've got the kind of children, parent generation and grandparent generation all involved in those collective worships. Um, so we've been finding ways of doing that online and in person that connects those two things together, um, which has been really interesting and exciting. Um, and it was great with year sixes. Um, because they've been physically in school and uh, when they were asked about what was good about being back and what they were enjoying doing, they loved being able to gather together. Um, but also they said um, what we've done with our Open the Book and our um, people like me doing the collective worship online um, is that actually that was part of normal for them and was, was really helping um, and helping connect children who were at home and children who were at school um, together with one another. And that, uh, yeah, and I, I wonder if one of the things, once we're past, you know, um, certainly this phase of, of, of the, the pandemic and all the rest of it, but one of the things that we'll, we'll have noticed in this period of time and that we'll want to learn from and incorporate going forward is, yeah, the statistics suggest that folk have been coming to our churches, those that have been doing things or been able to do things online, who don't normally come to church. And I wonder whether there'll almost be like a dual operating system where we'll say, you know, we've we've got this mission field which draws people towards what we do on a Sunday. But there is also this other kind of new mission field which we almost didn't know or realise was there. How do we work with that as well? And so there, I think there's a lot of interesting thinking and learning um, that will come out of this really difficult period, um, which, which is which is fascinating. Um I've got the three of you here, so I might as well get my money's worth. Um, not that we are paying you anything. I was going to say, I haven't seen any money being promised. <laughs> Only that was true. Um, I'm just wondering if we can tap into, uh, in each of your cases, some of your specific expertise and, and experience. So I've got individual questions for each of you. Um, go start with John. We, we hear a lot about church planting these days um, or church transplanting um, increasingly. Uh, you're involved with resourcing churches who are very much into church planting. Uh, you've done some plants, you've done some transplants. What are we learning from that? I think it's a really important question because there's a lot of um, sort of misunderstanding around this. Because as we plant churches, we're not saying that the form of church is better than anybody else's church. 
but we're doing it for a couple of reasons. The first one is we're doing it because of something I said earlier, which is that the life of God has come alive in a particular church. And it, and actually the, what we see in the way that discipleship works is that it's much easier to try and uh, transplant life than uh, than raise the dead, and so uh, so where the where where there isn't life within a within a church, maybe a church has declined and there isn't a congregation in that building anymore. It's much easier than a vicar trying to invite something and make something happen from scratch. Whereas we actually send a team of people where there's life already, and those group of people become an attractive welcoming and uh, a missional group uh, to that community and so so I think that's the first reason we do it and the second reason we do it is we want to get close to a new group of people that we haven't been able to reach before and that might be physically close by planting into a community that doesn't have a church within it or it might be um, a network of people that needs a style and a type of church to reach it that uh, that otherwise we won't reach them and so this is this is really a costly thing to do involves people leaving their churches involves people um, changing uh, where and the pattern of their worship and their willingness to take on this mission that they feel called to so it's really costly uh, but it's it's done out of love with a desire to to make the the love of God accessible to people in a fresh way by uh, by bringing new life to a church or by creating a new church community that that relates and connects with with that community. So David's Jacob's ladder is a great example. Another one is for us as imprint that we've planted a. a, a uh, a young adults congregation that is seeking to reach um, young adults from black and minority ethnic uh, uh, backgrounds. And the Holy Trinity Church, even though it's in the city centre, wasn't touching that community at all. But this group of 10 people went, they formed in the, um, in the hall um, of St Andrews on Jaron Street, and they've reached hundreds of black and minority ethnic young adults who Holy Trinity would never have reached. So it, it really isn't a sense of this is better and this is, this is the thing that is, is, is the only thing we should be doing, but it's a response to the reality that we won't reach those people unless we're willing to move and create something that will connect with them. And so it really is an act of love. Mm. So that's a lot about the, the kind of the, um, the, the reason for doing it and, and, and the inspiration. Um, are there any things that you've noticed about what tends to work in church? You know, when church planting goes well, um, are there common characteristics when it kind of goes pear-shaped? Are there common characteristics? <laughs> Is there stuff you've picked up over the last few years through doing all this stuff? Yeah, so I think a couple of things. The first is that we've co uh, sort of covered already, which is you need to listen to the people you're seeking to reach. And so you you want to go with a sense of humility and to listen and to love those people and allow that to shape and form what grows rather than a, a sort of a franchise model of, of transporting what you already have. Um, I think the other thing that, that really works is that when you send a team of people around a vision, it releases them and energizes and empowers them. And so what I've seen in every one of our church plants is that people who hadn't previously felt that they had a contribution to make and had a, a ministry or a role to play. Suddenly, it's all hands on deck to get this thing to happen, and they get released into something that really releases their gifts and their, their energies. And so the reason that it works um, is because suddenly they're, they're fulfilling something of their calling and they're contributing to the work of God's kingdom, and that, that whereas before they weren't. And so... That's another reason why I think that it's 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 something that God's using is that it's it's releasing people into their calling and their ministry. That's really useful. Thank you, um, Alison. Small villages, um, usually you know, in very small communities, rural churches, English countryside. What's working? Um, okay, so I think that there are lots of different things, but I I think. The kind of overall picture um, for me recently um, is something about um, the way that we have been developing leadership um, and uh, the multi-generational aspect of that. So you've already heard me talk a little bit about 
um, schools uh, and our connection with uh, churches and schools and the multi-generational nature of that. I think that's been quite important for us. And the fact that we explore faith together at a multi-generational level, and we do that in our school buildings, we do it in our church buildings. um, And as I said, more recently, we've been doing it online for the first time. But actually um, having leaders who might be um, children, you know, or grandparents or, you know, parents' generation, that kind of uh, variety of leadership allows us to see faith through someone else's eyes. It's been quite transforming for everybody sometimes to sit um, or stand or do whatever we're doing. But when the leader is um, a child, um, some of what they say, in fact, quite a lot of what they say has has been really transforming in terms of our faith development uh, as adults. Um, so, you know, I, I hear what John's saying, and I think that's, you know, I think it's really exciting, some of what we're doing. Um, sometimes people uh, will say to me, the, the countryside, the tiny ministries kind of look like it's dead. Why don't you just, you know, um, do something else? Because it is hard to raise the dead. Um, and I'm, it might be the mischievousness in me, so forgive me. Um, I wanted occasionally to, to quote Mark 5 and uh, Jairus's daughter and say often what looks dead to you, to God, it's sleeping. Mm. You know, Jesus says yeah. Jairus's daughter is just sleeping um, and she gets up. And for me, though Mark doesn't go on to tell us, I can only assume that she will have told her story to others of her own generation and to those older than her. And people will have Mm. discovered something of God's amazing love and action through the leadership of Jairus's daughter, whose name we don't even know. And yeah, I'd say something there about diversity in visible leadership. Um, And I think that's something which in the church in general, we are beginning to realise that people, it's of value to people who are in the congregation to see someone like them um, playing a key role uh, because that then enables them to see themselves moving into that kind of role so it's about diversity of leadership but I guess running alongside that from your point of view and the point of view of the existing leadership is an investment in helping to grow leaders yeah I think that's absolutely right and that diversity at, at every level and in every kind I do think is really important um, I think particularly if our overall communities are not especially diverse, because out in the countryside we may not look very broad or very diverse. Um, so something about that really matters. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, Dave, I wonder if you could sort of very briefly describe your fresh expression. People listening to this might not know, you know what would it look like and feel like to go to one of your evenings? Uh, and then from out of that, can you tell us something about what the evangelistic and what the faith community building type of lessons might have been that you've picked up uh, as you've been going along that journey but what what would it look like if I came to Jacob's Ladder um, on a normal um, that probably isn't a normal but for one of your evenings? Uh, Well broadly we meet monthly uh, in the Working Men's Club uh, the third Sunday of the month uh, and that's an important thing to say because people know when it's on even if they've forgotten when it's supposed to be on because it's the third one people turn up we're open for about an hour before we start and there's a bar uh, and that's running and and there's loud rock videos playing uh, most of which have been uh, requested the month before so people will come along so they can see and dig about a bit uh, the things that they've requested Uh, and then we'll start and usually it's me that begins things because I'm the as you'll have gathered, the one that Waffle was on and the exuberant one. But we've also got other members of the team who are far better at this than I am that do very clear, succinct introductions and explanations about what we're going to be doing. And and that's actually been one of the most important things about making people feel welcome and relaxed. And to find that we have those skills in the team is quite good. We have a team of about 12 who all have very active roles each evening and everybody that attends is aware that we're a team. And although not everybody gets to have the microphone, more than half of them do. But because it's a music thing, even the person that's operating 
the sound desk that night has actually got quite a high profile job because, you know, if it's too quiet or it's breaking up or whatever, the congregation will complain to them. So it's quite easy to have a visible team presence. And that's been very important for building that community. Uh, and as we go through the night, we just have different slots, really, that I guess our community will be familiar with. There's a rock quiz that, that runs throughout the evening. Um, we have a, a thing called Controversy Court, where one of our senior team members wears a judge's wig and, and just basically poses a controversial question for people to get involved in. It's all very light-hearted, but has a serious <laughs> point. Uh, and and it, the guy's called Paul, but nobody knows him as Paul anymore. They just call him Judge. Uh, so that's quite cool. We have a Jacob's Jukebox Jewelry. So new, new stuff that's out. People can get to participate. So you, you probably gather it's a very big joining together type thing. What happens is, so we have a theme for an evening, which is usually a typical metal or prog type thing, you know, where we look at something deep and meaningful or something like death or the devil or, or whatever. <laughs> and that's the theme that runs through. And there'll be a couple of moments during the evening. One's called Rock and Reflect, which is, I guess, for want of a better description, it's just a two-minute power-packed presentation of, of one sort or another about what the Bible has to say about that topic. We don't tell people what to believe. We just present them what Christians believe, end of. And then there's a longer bit later on in the evening called Prog and Ponder, where we unpack that, usually through some kind of team activity, uh, which even the uh, ones that are well into retirement uh, st still enjoy doing, where they get to work as teams and, and kind of explore, I guess, what Rock and Reflect introduced. And we have a one minute of prayer, which is primarily uh, remembering rock musicians that have died the previous month, but a couple of prayers relating to uh, the theme. Uh, and then about half past nine, having started officially at half seven, people start to wander off or sit around drinking and listen to more to more of the uh, the videos and music that's going on. In parallel to that, picking up the second part of your question, John, we run a separate thing called the Jesus Deal, which, funnily enough, picking up on what you said earlier, during lockdown has been episodes we've put online. Uh, but the Jesus deal, I guess, is our rock and roll basement version of Alpha that we put together ourselves specifically aimed at the community that we have where we explore discipleship. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have a second thing that, that, that that's come out, largely inspired by our heavy metal curate, Chris Haywood. We, we, we started an annual uh, beer festival, uh, which has no Jesus in it at all. It has beer and cider. Uh, the Jesus presence is, of course, the, the team. Uh, uh, I think it only came about because we thought of a cool name, which was uh, Jacob's Bladdered. Uh, <laughs> but that we oh, we we just had to cancel this year because of uh, because of COVID. But the first year we ran it, uh, we didn't know if anybody would turn up. We had to pretty much turn people away. It was it was rammed, and it was people coming in saying. They, they weren't aware the church would ever do anything like this. We reconnected, we, we developed a sort of second community. They're not ready for the Jesus deal yet, but they are ready for Jacob's Ladder. Uh, and that was something that I hadn't envisaged at all. That came from, from, uh, from Chris and, and some other members of the team. And that's been our most successful outreach thing uh, in terms of attracting people in just because it was shiny. Uh, and and then we have these evenings at a gentle church, and then we have these full-on discipleship sessions in parallel as well. That's Jacob's ladder. Now that's really that, that's really interesting because it seems like you know I don't know what, how much of it was planned and how much it was kind of by accident or the providence of God or whatever. But there's almost a stepping stone approach to getting involved. Yeah, you can get involved at this level. And then you can move on to this level and then this level as if there are sort of ways of getting drawn deeper into, um, you know, from, from inquirer to disciple. And I'm wondering more generally, you know, for, for all of you to, to ponder and give us your, your, your perspectives on, but how important is it to be strategic or intentional about church growth? I mean, I know 
we all realize that in one sense growth or not is within the sovereignty of God um, but we're responsible for our part so how important is intentionality I think for me intentionality is really important um I'm not sure if I'm honest that what I do intentionally would always be described as strategic um, in that kind of planned out a long way ahead kind of fixed manner. Um, But I guess I'm back to my experience of being a mum to three children who by December this year will technically all be adults. Um, When my daughter was born, I did intentionally set out to be the kind of family where every person in our household, no matter what their age or any other difference, could grow into being the person God intended them to be and live their best life every single day. Um, And I wanted that to include that strong relationship with God, because for me, that is the best life. Um, But that had to be their choice about how and if that happened. And so in the villages, you know, my kind of vicar role I do intentionally set out to be the person who enables others on that same transformation to live their best life in God's company. Um, But the thing I've discovered about God over the years is I often find myself doing things that I hadn't intended um, to do in order to make that possible. So God's intentionality and mine don't always match. And I'm having to learn continually to listen and to go with God. But I don't think that makes it unintentional or haphazard. It's just a different kind of intentionality. That's so good, Alison. I really love that. I I much prefer the word intention rather than strategic. I think strategic feels like a middle class word and uh, as if we can plan it all out and, and, and we're very clever. I think that it's the intent of our hearts that leads us to action. And if that heart is is shaped by that intent, then God can break into that and we're and we're then ready in position to to move with him and so so i think that it's it's about our our sort of our positioning and our posture of of an intentional outward loving um seeking to grow and include people in church that then makes us available to god as he might want to to change that and so yeah i thought that's so encouraging well we've been um pretty positive so far um, let's be really honest. If it was easy, every church would be growing. Um, and I think once or twice we've heard this phrase um, in this conversation about the cost. Um, but what is what is the cost of taking a church on a church growth journey? I mean, if I come in again, I, I, this is so important, John, because um, I think that this. The, the thing we began with, which is God's desire to grow his church, I think is there constantly. And he's just looking for us to be available to him, for him to use us to do that. It doesn't mean it's all going to go and be perfect and easy. But that availability is really costly because it's going to involve change. And for us at Holy Trinity, <clears throat> the way that it, it's worked is that it's involved an enormous amount of change. And as human beings, we always find that change difficult. And so I look back on a journey where we change from individual small groups that didn't have a missional focus to try to reach people or grow. And we've become a church of missional communities in which some of those communities have multiplied and planted and and reached people. And each of those communities has baptized people and, and within the church. And... And yet the journey to those missional communities was incredibly painful for people to move from one group to another, for us to change the shape of groups, to, for us to change the pattern and rhythm of our life. Uh, and we've had to change enormously as a church. That's all been motivated by the love we have for God and the love for our neighbour that we want them to know Jesus Christ. But that that has involved a lot of cost. and And I think that one of the reasons why churches don't grow is that they become very fixed and unwilling to change and change is always costly and so I think that's a really important question. Yeah I mean I I couldn't agree more really I think that's true and I think it for me it links to that listening to God's way um, which is often different from our own so exactly what John was just describing Um, and it reminds me of that you know, Archbishop Justin's used that phrase, radical Christian inclusivity, 
um, that that always involves change and it is difficult. Um, it will mean putting others' needs before our own preferences, and that goes right across the range of different kinds of churches. Um, you know, others might need something different from whatever it is that we've been used to um, in order to enable their faith. Um, but I think in terms of cost, there's something for me that's particular as a leader. So if the cost is mine, then um, I feel like that's something that that we can kind of move with and say, you know, actually really feel this is what God's wanting me to do. Um, and so I'm going to lead in this way or put this down or whatever. Um, but actually, if the cost will be borne by other people, um, then I'm just really aware that I want to be needs to be much more prayerful and in conversation um, because that's something quite different. Um, and actually, I think for you know exactly what John was just describing, for us to do what God wants as church communities, it, it's pretty much the whole, there will be a cost to everybody and to the community as a whole. Um, and it's how we do that, how we learn to listen to what God's calling us to. Um, is quite important. So as we sort of draw to a close, I wonder um, from all of you, any final tips um, or words of encouragement that you'd like to give uh, to churches or fresh expressions out there who are looking to look beyond their walls and grow new followers of Jesus? Um, you know, what, what tip or what word of encouragement would you, would you want to give them? Guys, I'm back. I'm really sorry. The builders took the Wi-Fi out. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> that explains my unusual silence. Back in the room. <laughs> right. Well, I would say for us, I think our learning bit is that God's way more interested in our faithfulness than our apparent success. I, and I think the two things that we would hold precious to are embrace the mess because as certainly with fresh expression, it's very messy. We try, I think, as Alison said earlier on, to make everybody feel of equal value from their first visit to their umpteenth visit and their involvement or light touch or whatever. And that does get messy, not least because we encourage reality. We would sooner have people say, I don't feel like praying. I don't want to sing. I don't want to watch more discipleship videos. I just want to listen to death metal. Uh, then actually pretend they're going along with the flow because I think that's what that's what we're here for as church. That does make things sometimes very messy, frustrating, difficult to manage, but that's when the love kicks in, I think. And uh, again, coming back to Stephen earlier, Stephen said, you know, no matter what you do, just let go and let God be in charge. And and I think to all the mess, that's what we endeavour to do. We don't always succeed, but that would be the success story, just letting God be in charge. So great. Two tips there. One, embrace the mess. Uh, and then secondly, you know, acknowledge the fact that it's God who's the boss and let him be the boss. So yeah, lovely. Um, yeah, a tip and a word of encouragement from you, Alison? Um, I think for me, it would be that living our best life with God and intentionally seeking to make it possible for others to explore doing that for themselves is the most effective thing we can do. And I genuinely believe that the coming and going of a church community doing that um, will transform those within the walls and beyond them um, in every corner of our community. There's something almost inherently attractive about that when that's what's really going so. on. John? Yeah, what, I, what I'd say is... Um, Offer yourself to God um, on the behalf of your community. Say that you long to reach them and then ask him to call you into that, to, to show you what you can do and then just take the next step. And for me, all I've ever done in leadership is be willing to take what I thought was the next step into what God was calling us to, to do that bravely and to do it as wisely and carefully as you can. Uh, and then to wait for what the next step after that is. Uh, and so quite often we come up with the reasons we can't do all of this. If we lay those down and offer ourselves to God and say, Lord, what could I do? Mm. Then, then I find that he gives you that next step, and then you just have to have the courage to take it. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. Well, as ever, it's been good to talk. 
Uh, a real thank you to our panel today, to David, to Alison, to John. A uh, thank you to all of you out there who've been listening. Uh, we hope that you continue the conversation of how do you respond to the suggestion that growth should be the normal expectation within the kingdom of God. How might your church gear up for growth? What does growth look like in a pandemic with social distancing? Might God be calling you to explore pioneering a fresh expression of church? How welcoming is your church? How will you evangelise in contextually relevant ways? Keep the conversation going in your churches, your fresh expressions of church, your small groups. Uh, but this has been Rethinking Aloud, podcasting from the Diocese of Leicester. Uh, and until next time, stay safe and be blessed.